My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects. Today we're on episode 28. Now I should just say off the bat that if you missed episodes 20 through 27, you may want to go back and listen to those as they provide the foundation for our discussion today. Today's episode is entrenched in the year 1842. For our purposes, the Mormon Church is digging roots and building up a flourishing city in Nauvoo, Illinois. The church is continuing to expand through proselytization in the U.S. and exploding in growth in Europe where Joseph Smith has called his Quorum of Twelve Apostles to serve missions. Now, let's just set the scene for what America looked like in 1842. Just like in the last episode, the United States is still made up of just 26 states. They won't add a 27th until the year 1845 when Florida will officially be admitted as a state. Just as we discussed in episode 26, in 1841, President Martin Van Buren lost his re-election campaign for President of the United States. Maybe he should have cared more about people and less about the election. Probably a low blow. I don't know. His successor to President of the United States was President William Henry Harrison. Have you heard of him? Probably not. He only lasted as President for one month, as he would immediately contract pneumonia and die. His tenure of one month is the shortest in history, and his death in office is the first for a president of the United States. President Harrison will be succeeded by his vice president, John Tyler, as the 10th president of the United States of America. Now, right as John Tyler became president, he would stun his own party members by immediately vetoing a bill that was attempting to reestablish the Second Bank of the United States. This would cause an angry riot among the Whig party members on the White House grounds that night where Whig party members would fire rifles and burn an effigy of the president on the White House lawn. Can you imagine? In 1841, the president didn't have a security unit at the White House to protect him or his family. This is considered the most violent demonstration on the White House grounds in U.S. history. Also of note for future podcast episodes, late in 1841, The first wagon train left from Independence, Missouri to California. The trip would take almost seven months for the 69 adults and children. I wonder if the Mormons saw the wagon train leaving their frontier towns for new lands and more freedom. In 1842, fans of the game Oregon Trail will like to hear that the second organized wagon train would leave along what would become the Oregon Trail and head out west. This wagon train contained over 100 people. Also in 1842, with college football now in the air, it's interesting to know that in this year, the University of Notre Dame was founded. It's a really old school. But in terms of context corresponding to our show, I wanted to touch on a couple of similar events that took place in May of 1842. The first took place in London, England. On May 30th, 1842, Queen Victoria was traveling by carriage on an ordinary day with Prince Albert down Constitution Hill. Queen Victoria had to feel just a little bit nervous. Traveling on the same route the day before, the prince had seen a man pull out a pistol, level it off at the queen and pull the trigger. However, the gun failed to fire and the man ran off before he could be caught. 
So today, here she was traveling the same route with the same person down Constitution Hill. And what would you know? Out of the crowd popped John Francis, the failed assassin from the previous day. Like the day before, he quickly withdrew his pistol and fired at the queen. Luckily, in his haste, he missed and was captured and was sentenced to death. The queen, however, would just banish him for life. This assassination attempt was one of many that was tried on the queen during her time on the throne. Assassination attempts were common in the 1800s, as we'll see presidents, prophets, and royalty assassinated. Tying this assassination attempt to our story, just a few weeks before the queen was almost murdered, on the other side of the ocean in Independence, Missouri, there was also an assassination attempt. It was a dark and rainy evening on May 6th of 1842, just weeks before the assassination attempt on Queen Victoria. Former Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs was sitting in his study reading the newspaper. If you'll remember from previous episodes, Boggs played a heavy role in the Missouri-Mormon War. Boggs sat back as mobs drove the Mormons out of Missouri, ignored their pleas for a redress, and issued the extermination order that ultimately drove the Mormons out of the state. But on top of that, Boggs was a fierce politician that didn't mind getting his hands dirty when debating opponents for office. He'd made more than a few enemies in his time in Missouri. So, as Boggs read his newspaper that night, there was suddenly a loud crashing sound and Boggs was thrown to the floor. Someone had fired a large buckshot through his window into the former governor. Unlike the Queen's assassin, Boggs didn't miss. The buckshot balls struck Boggs in four places. Two were deeply lodged into his skull, one was buried in his neck, and the last entered into his throat, where Boggs swallowed it. Boggs was in terrible condition. Upon arriving on the scene, his brother, a doctor, pronounced the wounds fatal. Other doctors agreed. The assassin who'd escaped left the weapon at the scene. The doctors were wrong, however. Boggs would slowly and painfully recover. So the question now remained, who attempted to assassinate Lilburn Boggs? After everything that had taken place with the Mormons, the eyes of the local sheriff immediately fell upon Joseph Smith and the church leadership. When accusations arrived in Nauvoo weeks later, Joseph Smith would go into hiding for the next three months so that he couldn't be carried off by Missouri lawmen without due process. What did he do while he was in hiding? Today's object are the compiled letters on baptism for the dead. So what are the baptism for the dead letters? And how did they come about? To understand how the revelations and the letters for baptism for the dead came about, we have to go back to the year 1823. If you'll remember way back to episode 2, we discussed Joseph Smith's upbringing. After Joseph Smith said he saw God and Jesus Christ, his family immediately believed his story. Joseph Smith became the spiritual leader of the family in much the same way his brother Alvin was tasked with the family's physical welfare. Alvin, his brother, was the oldest, and Joseph Smith really looked up to his oldest brother. One day in 1823, Alvin came home from work complaining of bitter stomach pains. Alvin would writhe in bed for days, and when he couldn't keep anything down, they knew he was soon to die. Before dying, he had specific words for Joseph Smith. Alvin believed Joseph and told him to finish the work. Alvin then died. Days later at his funeral, because Alvin hadn't been baptized, the local preacher intimated that Alvin was going to hell. 
This enraged the Smiths, especially Joseph. Remember, Joseph Smith won't organize the Mormon church for another seven years. Now, let's pause the episode here and discuss the age-old question vexing Christians throughout the centuries. What's going to happen to the billions of people throughout the history of the world that never had a chance to learn of Jesus Christ and be baptized? Is it fair to say that they'll be separated from God for something they had no hand in? Jesus said that a man must be born of water to enter into the kingdom of God. So what will happen to all those people? The severity of these answers depends on the spiritual leader and the century. Christians have eased up on the judgments, but the basic message has either been, they're going to hell, or we don't know, God will sort it out. Now, these questions ate at Joseph Smith. He was deeply bothered that his brother died just seven years before he could restore the Mormon church, the priesthood, and by extension, baptism. Joseph wondered, what would really happen to Alvin? Was hell really a possibility? Now, jumping forward to 1836, Joseph Smith and the Mormons were in Kirtland, Ohio, in the newly built Kirtland Temple. At that time, Joseph Smith said he had a vision, one of many, but in this vision, Joseph Smith said he saw the celestial kingdom, God and his angels, and there, in the middle of it all, was Joseph's dear brother Alvin. Joseph records that he was thrilled but confused. How was this possible? Alvin wasn't baptized, and that was required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It seems Joseph Smith wouldn't have this fully revealed unto him for a few years. He speculated with some of the brethren as to what this could mean, but, unfortunately, with the failing leadership in Kirtland, the Missouri-Mormon War, and his time in Liberty Jail, Joseph didn't have time to give this much more consideration. But, with Nauvoo settled, Joseph's mind again returned to the subject. So, on August 15th of 1840, Joseph Smith was attending a friend's funeral in Nauvoo. At the funeral, Joseph Smith taught the principle that men and women on earth could act for their deceased kin and fulfill the requirement of baptism on their behalf. The Mormons in Nauvoo were thrilled. Mormonism seemed to have an answer for one of the oldest questions in Christianity. They immediately began to meet at the rivers and streams around Nauvoo and practice baptism for the dead, for the deceased loved ones. As Nauvoo continued to expand, Joseph would add to this revelation. In January of 1841, Joseph Smith received an important revelation that not only called for the construction of a temple in Nauvoo, but forever linked the ordinance of baptism for the dead with temples. The revelation said, quote, For baptismal font there is not on the earth, that they, my saints, may be baptized for those who are dead. For this ordinance belongeth to my temple, end quote. So from this revelation, the Mormons learned that not only was baptism for the dead now a temple ordinance, but the Mormons would break ground and begin the building of a new temple in Nauvoo. Okay, so we've now caught up to our story. Boggs was almost killed. Joseph Smith, who didn't trust the law to be fair to him, was in hiding. And we're now in August of 1842. Although Joseph Smith had been in hiding, he said that in the quiet moments, the Lord had been teaching him. Wilford Woodruff wrote of Joseph at this time, quote, Joseph has been deprived of the privilege of appearing openly, yet the Lord is with him as he was upon the Isle of Patmos with John, end quote. As Joseph didn't want to go out into the open, but was receiving continued revelation on the ordinance for baptism for the dead, he sat down on September 1st of 1842 and penned a letter that was mailed to the Nauvoo leadership and was to be read to the Mormons in conference. 
The first letter would be canonized as Doctrine and Covenants, section 127. In the letter, the Lord instructed the Mormons of the necessity of having a recorder for baptism for the dead, and that it was all to be recorded in the archives of the temple, and that it would also be recorded in heaven. What we have here is a revelation on how to properly record and document the baptism. On September 7th, Joseph Smith dictated a second letter on the same subject of baptism for the dead, which he ordered to be read on the next Sabbath day. The second letter was also canonized as section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants. In it, the Mormon prophet gave a more detailed record-keeping proposal calling for witnesses, a recorder in each of Nauvoo's wards, and a general recorder who would compile all the ward records in a general church book. These two letters were canonized in the year 1844, and the Mormons followed them exactly from there on out. This principle would be perceived as a glorious doctrine to the Mormons. Almost every journal found from this period records the Mormons rejoicing in the ordinance and the thought that they were saving their families. Now, pausing the story real quickly, the Mormons didn't believe that a baptism performed for a deceased person signified that the person was saved. If you read any anti-Mormon form online, this is a popular false statement commonly circulated. According to Mormon doctrine, it was revealed to Joseph Smith that in the three days between Christ's death and his resurrection, he entered the spirit world to teach the dead that didn't know about him. This was confirmed to the Mormons in 1 Peter 3.19, where it speaks of Christ teaching the spirits in prison after this life, and of 1 Peter 4.6, where it speaks about preaching to the dead. These verses, along with Joseph Smith's revelations, confirmed to the Mormons that God had an answer for the millions of people that hadn't heard of Christ or had been baptized. The Mormon doctrine of baptism for the dead has become a major differentiator between Mormons and other Christian sects. Though it does mention baptisms for the dead in the New Testament, most modern-day Christians are unfamiliar with the ritual. So, where can you see copies of the letters on baptism for the dead? Like many early church history objects, the original letters have been lost, However, they were copied many times before being printed in the Doctrine and Covenants. If you want to read the text, you can Google sections 127 and 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants, or just buy a copy from any bookstore. Now, how have the Baptism for the Dead letters affected the modern Mormon church? This ordinance is still practiced in every Mormon temple on earth. Due to the Mormons' work to discover their deceased ancestors, The Mormon Church now has the largest genealogy library on earth. We'll get into that more in upcoming episodes. Finally, it looks like through all of this, Joseph Smith finally found closure for his brother Alvin. Now, what to do about that arrest warrant? So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode on History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects, Episode 28, Baptism for the Dead Letters. As always, if you have questions or comments on this show, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc, historyofmormonchurch at gmail.com. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to like it or subscribe on iTunes. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening.